Will you please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. Once again, we're going to uh, have a little bit of a longer passage, so I'm going to forego a New Testament reading, and we'll read just Judges 2, verse 6, through chapter 3, verse 6. Again, here in these early couple of chapters, we're getting the, the big picture um, in this sort of uh, prologue setting up for the individual stories of the individual judges that will take place uh, through the rest of the book. All right, so Judges 2, beginning with verse 6. And before we read this, let's pray once again and ask God's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father in heaven, open our eyes now, we pray, so that we might see the wonderful things your word contains. And we ask that you would uh, show us Christ tonight and give us um, hearts to receive in faith the good news uh, of the way that he has revealed to us, even in this part of the Old Testament. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges 2, beginning at verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Haret, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them. 
whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites, who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon, as far as Labo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. Amen. You may be seated. I once had a history class where there were uh, regular quizzes from time to time, um, except that the teacher did not call them quizzes. He called them opportunities. Don't forget, next time we're going to have an opportunity, an opportunity for you to demonstrate just how much you've learned, or in some cases... Uh, Possibly how much you have not learned, how much you failed to learn. Um, Throughout the book of Joshua, Israel is going to have the opportunity to show, time after time, whether they are going to be loyal to the Lord or not. Whether they are going to live as covenant keepers or covenant breakers. Whether they're going to live by God's word or by their own desires. Whether they're going to maintain a distinct identity as the holy people of God, or whether they're just going to blend in with the culture around them. And time after time after time, they are going to squander those opportunities. They are going to flunk those tests. But time after time, there's also going to be another opportunity An opportunity for the Lord to show his faithfulness to the covenant. His mercy and compassion to his people who are in distress, in a mess of their own making. He's going to have an opportunity to show his saving power to people who don't deserve it, and yet he rescues them anyway, time after time after time. Let me give you our three points for tonight um, for looking at this passage. We're going to see first the forgetfulness of Israel. That's uh, chapter 2 up through verse 15. Second will be the faithfulness of the Lord, verses 16 through 19. And then number three will be failing the test, chapter 2, verse 20 through chapter 3, verse 6. So the forgetfulness of Israel, the faithfulness of the Lord and failing the test. First, that forgetfulness of Israel. You may remember the kind of ominous way that the book of Exodus begins. 
where it says that after Joseph died, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And that uh, was, of course, what led to the enslavement of the people of Israel. Well, Judges uh, begins with somebody else's death. It begins with the death of Joshua. And in verse 10 of chapter 2, you can see that similarly ominous statement, there arose another whole generation now who did not know the Lord. Generation of Israel who did not know the Lord after the death of Joshua. Uh, So the historian here in this whole chapter is seeking to answer the question, what went wrong? How did we get there? How do we get here from there? when uh, thinking of the way the book ends. And throughout so much of the book of Joshua um, that we studied a few months ago, in that book, Israel is often doing very well, really, in terms of obedience, in terms of covenant faithfulness. They are very, for very much of that book, they are fulfilling faithfully the mission that God gives to them in the conquest. And they're trusting God to help them. And God, as you remember, does many wonderful supernatural things Um, to make that early conquest a grand and sweeping success. You remember the Jordan River crossing. You remember the Battle of Jericho. You remember the sun standing still. I mentioned these things last time. That that generation that followed Joshua into the land of Canaan saw some pretty amazing things take place. Remember also, though, that they were given a responsibility. A responsibility to transmit the memory of those acts of God to their children and further generations beyond that. Remember Joshua 4 after the Red Sea crossing. When, you're, or, uh, when, when they crossed the, not the Red Sea, the Jordan River, sorry. Um, well, how in Joshua 4 it says, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Remember the stones that they're supposed to erect there as a monument to the river crossing. Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. In other words, that they were supposed to hand down the memory of the conquest in the same way that their parents were supposed to hand down the memory of the Exodus and the Passover and so on, and the way they were supposed to teach their children the law of God. You remember from Deuteronomy chapter 6, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and then it goes on, you shall teach them diligently to your children. We've talked about this many times before in various contexts that that part of the responsibility of living in covenant with God is to pass on the story and the meaning of that covenant to future generations. And I've got to tell you, that does not just happen. It's not automatic. It takes effort. It takes diligence. It takes planning and intentionality. What we want to be doing in the church in general, in our families. And, but here at Resurrection in particular, we want to be cultivating that multi-generational vision for the church, not just constructing a church that we can be happy with in our own lifetimes, but thinking, how can we faithfully set the conditions now for this congregation to be a faithful church decades after we're gone, passing down that faith to future generations? Remember what Paul tells Timothy from our pastoral epistle series, what you've seen and heard from me, the presence of many witnesses, and trust a faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's that multi-generational vision for the church as it appears in the New Testament. 
We see in Judges is the dark shadow that sets off that bright vision for the covenant people. What we see is what happens when it all goes wrong, when God's people forget and they fail to transmit that covenant story and that covenant law. And that generational transmission breaks down. Yes, it's true that the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and actually more than that, all the days, in fact, of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen, these are the people who had actually seen with their own eyes all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And so those people who had seen it with their own eyes, they stayed faithful, and they led the next generation in staying faithful while they were still alive. But once they were gone, Once they were gone, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That is the tragedy of Israel's history. It is a tragedy of forgetfulness. This is why the Bible repeatedly warns the people of God against forgetting Only take care, Deuteronomy 4, and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and significantly, make them known to your children and your children's children. Remember what James 1 says later in the New Testament. Don't be a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. And then somewhere in between, the middle of the Bible, Psalm 78, listen to what the psalmist says about this. He remembers God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Okay, so as that generational transmission breaks down, let's see what this forgetful nation does then. What they do is they abandon the Lord, and they instead start serving, it says, the Baals and the Ashtaroth. These, these are the major deities of the Canaanite religion. Baal was uh, a male god, Ashtaroth. The Ashtaroth were female goddesses. Remember uh, that phrase I brought up last time from the commentator Daniel uh, Block, um, the Canaanization of Israel. The Canaanization of Israel. What's happening here is instead of driving out the Canaanites, that's what they're supposed to do, right? They're supposed to be ridding the land of Canaanite idolatry, And instead, the Israelites are assimilating to that Canaanite idolatry. They're becoming part of that culture. They're just blending in. They're acting as though they're just another one of those Canaanite nations. You could say the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Israelites. Just another name and list. That's what they're becoming. Except... They're not just another name on the list, are they? They're not the only ones with a say in this matter. Because for all of their unfaithfulness to the Lord, Israel can never escape the fact 
that they are in an indissoluble relationship, a covenant relationship with the one true God, not with those Baals and Ashtoreth, with the true God who is determined because of who he is, because of his promises, because of his unchanging character, the Lord is determined not to let Israel get away with this drift away from him. He is determined that that drift will not be the end of Israel's story. And so in verse 14, what happens here is the Lord intervenes. The Lord begins to act supernaturally to change the course of this history. First, he acts in covenant judgment. Israel begins to experience those covenant curses that are outlined in the law of God. Defeat in battle, being plundered by other nations. These are exactly the things that the law says will happen if Israel's unfaithful. It says they could no longer withstand their enemies. Why? Well, because now whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord, instead of fighting for them, now the hand of the Lord was against them. As the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. See, God's not reacting, kind of shooting from the hip, getting mad all of a sudden, or acting in some kind of unpredictable, kind of capricious way. He's not like suddenly losing his temper, losing his temper at Israel out of nowhere. He is simply following through on his word. He is simply doing exactly what he told Israel would happen if they broke their side of the covenant. And that's what leads us to the next point then. Because if first we see here the forgetfulness of Israel, the second thing we see is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. And first, there's that faithfulness, frankly, to those covenant warnings. Faithfulness to those guarantees of covenant curse. But that's not the only thing that God is faithful to. What's the outcome of those covenant curses? Look at the end of verse 15. And they were in terrible distress. What do you think God, the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, is going to do when he sees his special covenant people in this terrible distress? You might think he's going to say, well, serves them right. I told them this would happen, and they're just getting what they deserve, and I'm going to just leave them there to stew in this mess that they've created for themselves. That's not what Judges says. It says that God has compassion. He has mercy. And in response to this great distress, what the Lord does is he moves towards Israel, not in the wrath that they deserve, ultimately bringing an end to them. Instead, he moves towards them in grace. See, this is the beauty of the covenant relationship of God with Israel. On the one hand... Israel gets what they deserve, that covenant curse for covenant breaking, but they also receive something they do not deserve. Israel receives something they do not deserve, and that is the judges. Israel does not deserve these judges that the Lord sends them, but the Lord sends them anyway. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And whenever he did this, it says the Lord was with the judge, And he saved them from the hand of all their enemies all the days of the judge. So I want to notice here that the the motive for the Lord sending these judges is not that Israel 
suddenly gets their, gets their act together and starts obeying again. Um, it's not Israel's obedience that somehow earns God's help through these judges. It is Israel's distress. It is Israel's distress that is the reason God sends the judges. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Now, we should also acknowledge that the way that it's put here, when it says whenever, whenever this happened, whenever they were uh, in distress, you know, the Lord sent these judges. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord's with the judge. Um, that whenever is, is not such a great sign, right? That means this cycle is happening repeatedly. Uh, and in fact, this is an important aspect of this part of the prologue to Judges. Um, the historian here is previewing for us uh, what we can think of as kind of this cyclical nature of the entire book. He's giving us the big picture, this pattern that's going to characterize the entire uh, history of this whole period. There are, there are these cycles of disobedience, distress, and deliverance, and then more disobedience and more distress, and then more deliverance and then more disobedience. Um, Although it's important to clarify, too, when you think about the big picture of Judges, it's not, it's not merely a circle, as though Israel just keeps going, going down into disobedience, then God delivers them back down in, in, a, in a pure, circular way. The overarching story of Judges has often been referred to as a downward spiral. You could think of it as kind of the circles going like this, downward, or maybe kind of, you know, a funnel kind of shape. It's a, it's a cycle, and yet it's not just staying in the same place because it gets worse and worse throughout the book. And the disobedience over time uh, grows worse and worse, and the cycles of distress grow darker and darker from the beginning to the end until the end of the book is just unbelievably tragic. Whenever the judge died, it says here, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. Verse 19. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so all of, for all of that mercy that God shows to them, for all of that compassion, for all of that kindness and deliverance that God displays, Israel does not get better and better as a result. They just continue getting worse and worse and worse. And yet, do you see what is shining through here in the midst of all that evil coming from Israel and all in the midst of all of their unfaithfulness? Do you see how that is simply showing up for us all the more brightly in contrast? The faithfulness. The faithfulness of God. Because God is not going to abandon his side of the covenant. He is not going to abandon his relationship with Israel, even though they are doing everything they can possibly do, it seems, to abandon their side of the covenant with him. But the Lord, as you can see, is going to continue to be faithful. He's going to be faithful to bring severe discipline through the covenant curses, but he's also going to continue to show his saving power. Make sure that Israel can never say they have not seen the evidence of God's saving power, his willingness to rescue and deliver them. Rescue and deliverance, calling them back to loyalty to him, even though they so rarely respond as they should to that call. 
It's an amazing comfort to know for ourselves that when God sees us struggling with sin, when He sees us making wrong, destructive choices, when He sees us breaking His law and then suffering the consequences for it, often sin does bring terrible, practical consequences in our lives. Sometimes severe chastisement or discipline, punishment from God designed to teach us. But in that moment, when we are in distress, if we belong to God, God's attitude towards us, you see here in Judges, is an attitude of compassion, of mercy. One of my favorite theologians, Herman Boving, gives a really beautiful definition of mercy. He says God's mercy is his Goodness, it's one of the, the great big picture categories for the attributes of God. His good, God's goodness when he shows it to those in distress. That's mercy. It is God's goodness when he shows it to those in distress. Mercy and compassion are kind of synonyms. Think about Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. We could not help ourselves, but God took the initiative because he had compassion on us to do what it would take to bring us from death to life. A salvation that we did not deserve and that we could never earn. And the Lord Jesus saw the crowds during his earthly ministry. Remember how it says he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. That's why Israel needed the judges. They were like sheep without a shepherd, and God gave them shepherd after shepherd that they didn't deserve. How wonderful to see that same character of God, that same compassion of God displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We had compassion on those crowds. We had such a rich compassion on us. See, this is a big part of what the book of Judges as a whole shows us about the character of the God that we worship. It shows us his compassion for sinners who really only deserve to be condemned and wiped out, frankly. But God has mercy. Now, compassion is not the only thing that Judges shows to us about the character of the Lord. Judges shows us many sides, many facets of God's response to people's sin. Verse 20 shows us, goes on to show us what happens when in response to the mercy of God, Israel continues going back and doing the same things over and over again. Only worse and worse. And when that happens, we see this other side of the character of God, which is his wrath, his anger against sin. Because he is just, because he is righteous. And it says, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. It is bad enough, serious enough, 
to sin against God's law, to ignore his warnings in the first place. It is an even graver offense against the Lord to sin against his mercy. To see the compassion that he has extended to us in not giving us what our sins deserve, and yet to spurn that and rebel against him anyway. Notice here that the continuing presence of the Canaanites in the land serves a sort of dual purpose. On the one hand, it is the consequence, part of the punishment for Israel's sin. Uh, Back in verse 3, God said, They shall become thorns in your sides. You refuse to drive them out, so here they are. They're going to be this incessant irritation and threat to Israel. They're going to be the fly in the ointment of that promised land. It's supposed to be this wonderful home for them. So that very presence of the Canaanites, then, is part of the punishment for Israel's failure to drive them out. It's this natural, about as natural a consequence as you can get. There's that direct connection between the sin and the punishment. Uh, but there, there's another purpose, though, in God's plan for this continued presence of the Canaanites. Uh, they're going to serve not just as a punishment for Israel's failure, but they're also going to serve, in the, as time goes on, as a test for every future generation of Israelites to evaluate, well, what about you? Are you... Is, are, is this new generation going to follow through on this mission that the Lord gave Israel? Chapter 3, verse 2 says the later generations of Israel needed to learn how to fight. And that's not just how to fight in general. They needed to learn how to fight Canaanites because that was Israel's mission. Daniel Block, um, again, points out that the point here isn't, isn't just for them to learn war kind of in the abstract, to learn to be like this warrior people. It's it's for them to learn to engage in the holy war of the conquest that Israel was called to in the first place. Every generation is going to have this opportunity, right? This opportunity to show, what about you? Are you going to be faithful to that mission? Are you going to carry it out? Are you going to do faithfully what Israel is supposed to do? Every generation is presented with that test, with that opportunity. Now, let's think about this in light of the bigger story of the, of the whole Bible. This idea of God testing Israel through suffering that is also a consequence for sin, a test that is also a punishment. That idea is not new, of course. You just have to think about the 40 years in the wilderness. Think about those 40 years in the wilderness. Why did that happen? Why did Israel wander in the wilderness for 40 years? Well, on the one hand, it was a punishment. It was on account of Israel's rebellion and their refusal to enter the, and conquer the promised land at the end of Numbers. Uh, But in Deuteronomy, chapter 8, God gives an additional reason for those 40 years in the wilderness. He says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And this idea of, of testing for God's people goes even farther back in the Bible, all the way back to the very, very beginning In the Garden of Eden, remember that Adam faced a test. Adam was given the opportunity, right? The opportunity to show, was he going to be loyal to the Lord? Or was he going to listen to the voice of the tempter? 
Considering the fact that Adam failed that original test, squandered that original opportunity, it should come as no surprise, I suppose, that people have continued doing the same thing ever since. As evidenced throughout the Bible, Adam in the garden was tested and failed. Israel in the wilderness was tested and, in general, failed. Israel in Canaan was tested to see what was in their heart, to show whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord. And time after time, those opportunities, those quizzes came back covered in red ink. The only thing that Israel ended up proving was that they were utterly incapable of keeping the covenant, utterly unable to follow the law of God or to live as the kind of holy people that God had called them to be. They could not do it. This is just one of the many, many ways that the book of Judges then points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because think about Jesus' life. Jesus' entire life you could describe as a test. The the choice was constantly before the Lord Jesus. Live that life of obedience, service, and suffering that God the Father had called him to, or turn aside from that obedience and service and suffering and refuse to go that direction. You think about the particular, particularly intense moment of testing when he faced down the devil in the wilderness after the 40 days of fasting. How that choice was put to Jesus very vividly in that moment. That, that test, Jesus had the opportunity to demonstrate, was he going to live as a covenant breaker or a covenant keeper? And the good news... The gospel news is that what Israel could never, ever do in their history and what you and I have failed to do our entire lives, Jesus succeeded in doing there in the wilderness. Jesus succeeded in doing day after day, every day of his life, making the choice that would pass that test that we have failed. Jesus kept the covenant Jesus rejected the tempter. Jesus maintained that holiness. And he insisted in, on, on worshiping and serving the true God and him only and on living by every word that comes from his mouth. That's what Jesus did. See, it's not just these Israelites way back there in Israel getting oppressed by Canaanites needing judges to deliver them that failed God's test. It's every one of us In all of our lives, every one of us has failed God's test. Every one of us has broken God's covenant. None is righteous. No, not one of us. No one understands. Nobody seeks for God. Romans 3, all have turned aside. Together we've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. Just like unfaithful Israel. What does that verse go on to say? What has God done? If it were just based on what we have done, there would be no hope. But what has God done? The Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity, the sin, the punishment, the guilt of us all. He's taken our guilt and he's put it on the Lord Jesus on the cross. He carried that guilt for us and did away with it in his own death, the death that we deserve, not him. 
And he's taken that perfect record of Jesus, the way that Jesus passed the test, Jesus' obedience, his success. God has taken that and he's given it to us as a free gift. He calls us to open our hands and receive it. The tests are being handed back instead of handing us our own test covered in red ink. We receive as a gift that white sheet of paper, the check mark at the top showing Jesus' perfect score. We did not earn, but he earned it for us. As we close, I want us to remember one more thing. As sinners who have been saved by grace, we have that perfect score of Jesus counted as our own. And from here on out, life is still full of testing for the people of God. See, God, the Bible teaches us, is still giving you opportunities all the time to show what is really in your heart. To demonstrate just how much you've learned about following Jesus on that path of suffering that leads to glory. Part of the takeaway from this part of the book of Judges is uh, what James tells us when he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So you and I are not doomed to repeat this cycle that Israel was stuck in. That cycle of failure and rebellion over and over. We are not doomed to repeat that cycle. And why is that? It's because of Jesus, who has broken us out of that cycle by his grace, by his obedience, by his redeeming power. See, we go through trials now as forgiven sinners who have the power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. It's not just up to us to have the strength to break out of it. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the power. And so that means that for us as Christians, the trials, the tests, the opportunities are not there to break us down anymore. They're there to build us up. That testing to produce in us steadfastness. But there's still trials. There's still tests. There's still hard. And there's still opportunities. We should think of them that way. Opportunities to show, to demonstrate for the glory of God, the work of God's grace in our hearts that's helping us. It's giving us that power, supernatural power that comes from him, not to conform to this world like comes naturally to us. Not to be Canaanized like Israel was. Not just to blend in and be just like the people around us. But instead to be transformed through those very trials more and more into the image of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in so many ways this this whole book and this chapter in particular is very, very tragic. But it's not all tragedy because, Lord, you're showing us here your faithfulness, your grace, your mercy and compassion towards sinners. We pray that you would impress this in our hearts, that you would sober us, warn us against rebellion and unfaithfulness uh, through the example of Israel. But we pray 
more than that. That you would fill our hearts with the glory and beauty of the grace that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who has given us his perfect record of righteousness in place of our failure. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.